the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 1. Welcome to Season 16 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm your host, David Cummings. Our premiere episode of a very special season. In June, we'll be celebrating 10 years of the podcast, and we celebrate the written word, in spoken form, of course. So many old books, parchments, letters scattered about this place, we really should clean up a bit. So we'll look forward to going through them throughout the season. We hope you'll consider us well-read. And have you heard? We now have a Twitch channel over at twitch.tv slash thenosleeppodcast. Members of the No Sleep team stream games, audio productions, and even live performances. Follow us to get notified as soon as the fun starts. Don't wait to receive a letter about it. And speaking of letters and written communications, as many of you know, we have writers submitting their stories to us all the time. Our inbox is stuffed full. But very occasionally, we'll get a submission sent to us in another way, including some most unconventional ways. I rarely talk about behind-the-scenes things on the show, but this one was too interesting not to share. You see, I received an envelope. Fan mail, no doubt, I thought to myself. It took me a week or so to get around to opening it, and when I did, I was surprised. There were two letters inside the envelope. One was typed on basic printer paper. The other was... Well, I'll explain that one in a minute. The first letter was short and to the point. It read, Dearest Mr. Cummings, Included in this envelope is a letter that came into my possession some years ago. I'm something of a collector, and until now, I've kept my collection to myself. But recently, certain events have transpired that have made me realize I need to find someone to handle my collection should certain situations that I fear come to pass. I have chosen you to be this person. It would benefit me greatly if you were to read out the enclosed letter on your show. I assure you that I have the legal rights to grant this permission. I hope that my faith in you turns out to be warranted. The search to find a suitable successor has been a hard one, and I do not wish to begin the process again. For now, I shall sign off as Lenin Roman. That is not my name, but for reasons I can't disclose, it is a name that's important to the enclosed document. The next time you hear from me, should I deem you worthy to hear from me again, I shall be someone else. Yours, for now, Lenin Roman. Now, I thought this was a unique and eye-catching way of sending a submission, 
But when I glanced over the second document, I wasn't so sure. The paper is old-looking, impeccably so. If this is a new document made to look old, then a lot of effort has gone into it. The cursive matches penmanship of the day. The letter is clearly fragile. It's been sealed in a high-quality protective sleeve, and I'm certain that if I were to slice the sleeve open, the letter inside would crumble. So, whoever you are, Lenin Roman, or whoever you'll be next, consider me intrigued. (laughs) I hope I can live up to your expectations. So, as we begin Season 16, we shall start with this simple declaration. And now... The letters can be read. And this letter has no title. But since we perform stories with titles, I've decided to call it What Our Blood and Cannons Brought. October 12, 1863 My dearest Ellen, I do hope this letter finds you well and brings you relief to know that I am, in fact, alive. My old friend, Lieutenant Henry Reynolds, told me that since I'd been missing in action for over a week, I was presumed dead and my name given amongst the Rhode Island casualty lists. I know you must have seen my name in the newspaper, my darling. I know you must have grieved so much. I am, for the most part, recovered, and am soon to be discharged, as my right dominant arm can no longer grip neither revolver nor saber. I am writing this to you, while my mind is still fresh from the trauma I inquired upon those blue-black hills of Kentucky. Do you remember from my last letters when I complained about the guerrillas that have been harassing our supply lines? General Grant finally had enough when a group of these craven rebel animals attacked a convoy of wounded that was returning from the front. They killed every man in the group, including the doctors and even the company chaplain that was there to administer last rites to the dying. This was a scandal that the newspapers in Washington ran to incite the nation. I was told that President Lincoln himself sent a telegram to General Grant to dispatch a contingent of capable Union men to dispatch these fiends for good. When I was approached by our company commander to take part, I didn't hesitate for a second. You see, darling, amongst the wounded dead were some of my men, including my own cousin, a boy of only 16. The orders were simple. Find the raiders and kill them. No prisoners were to be taken. I am a God-fearing man, Ellen. You knew that when you married me. But I do feel that this war has changed me, not just physically, but my heart as well. I know I was a tender man when you married me, full of laughter and life. But what I've seen and what I've done in the service of our country. Ellen, I fear with all my heart what you'll think of me when you see me again. My physical appearance has changed, but so has my heart. For when they told me no prisoners needed to be taken, I reveled in the thought. Men we captured from other Confederate units, after enough persuasion, told us what they knew about these raiders 
They were led by a man named Hatchet John White, based in Pikeville County, Kentucky. A man who once fought for the Union, but found it more profitable to steal and pillage from us instead, and deserted. He and a band of his outlaws, other Confederates, deserters, and mountain men formed his outfit he called Hatchet's Raiders. They were estimated to be 40 to 60 strong. They were ruthless and evil to the core, so much so that General Lee himself refused to acknowledge them as part of the Confederate Army. Nonetheless, they flew his colors. These stories didn't matter to me. I fought animals like them before. I had experience and I wasn't afraid, and neither were my men. Remember, I fought against Nathan Bedford Forrest and his cavalry at Shiloh, and my unit was the one that sent him howling back in full retreat, musket ball in his spine. I gathered 80 of my best men, all hearty and excellent shots. Men I've fought alongside since the beginning at Bull Run and who I trusted my life to, who trusted their lives to me. Men who are now dead. Men who I failed. It wasn't difficult luring the raiders. We simply presented them with a prize they couldn't pass on. We had rumors pass along ahead of us that wagons of Yankee payroll in gold were passing through his woods. We had boxes full of dynamite and gunpowder atop the wagons. My order was once Hatchet John's force was spotted, the men and horses would abandon the wagons and head to our lines. Our sharpshooters would then aim at the barrels when the raiders were inspecting them, blowing them to their maker, and we would charge the concussed survivors and finish them for good. It worked somewhat. A rainfall hit us in the early morning hours, and while we did have a tarp over the gunpowder, it didn't quite have the explosive effect we desired. Even then, Hatchet John was smart. He only sent a few scouts to check the loot and held the bulk of his force back. We heard that vile rebel yell as they rode toward the wagons, that combined yipping and hollering that would make our greener boys shake in terror. But we weren't wounded men and unarmed priests. We were hardened Union fighting men who had seen the best the South had and met them all unflinching. We quickly dispatched that spearhead force Hatchet John sent. Sure enough, they met their maker in pieces, and John fled back to his mountain hideout. I knew we'd never get another chance, so I gave the order to pursue him on that rainy, mountainous terrain. We fought them uphill as they retreated further and further up the mountain, battling the raiders, the muddy grounds, and the elements. I knew we were close to their hideout, as they had constructed fortifications that even held cannons that fired grapeshot at us at close range. Our own cannons began to respond in turn, adding to the deafening cacophony of battle. Our screams, rifle, and cannon fire covered the entire mountain as we were now yards apart, fighting in almost hand-to-hand close-quarters combat. The smell of gunpowder, wet dirt, blood, and sweat covered us all. I must admit, they were formidable and fought us to the death like demons, and every single inch of mountain we took, we took at a loss to us. 
But we were driven by the pure anger and rage for what they had done to our wounded friends, over what they had done to us throughout this entire war. I carried the memory of every one of my comrades that I lost to these traitorous rebel bastards within me every single time I stepped onto the battlefield, and so did every one of my men. I discarded my revolver after all the shots I had fired with it warped the barrel from the heat, rendering it unusable. No matter, as I then proceeded with my saber, that's when we heard it, all of us. We heard a loud vibration of what sounded like the waking groan of the earth splitting itself, preceded by what I can only compare to thousands of low trumpets or church organs that were so intense, so painful, that the earth beneath us shook and brought us to our knees, gray and blue alike. I felt my left eardrum burst, and I lost my hearing from it. When finally the earth stopped shaking, I lifted myself up with great hardship, as my sense of balance was now almost gone. We looked at one another and at the raiders in awestruck terror and confusion, as we saw a darkness come from in front of us, high in the mountain, behind the raiders. We heard the sounds of men screaming and running towards us in incomprehensible fear. The very raiders we were just fighting threw down their arms and were fleeing like cowards, running past as if we weren't even there, tripping and falling amongst themselves to get past. We saw them then, the things that made our foes flee. Ellen, please, I beg you to believe me. No one else will. And the doctors have written me off with hysteria and madness from the fatigue of battle and exposure. Please believe what I am about to confess to you. The things I saw were monstrous and beyond my understanding. They looked like men, but they weren't men. They were ten feet tall and as thick as trees, pale and white like sun-scorched bones, and covered with a primordial dust from the mountain itself. Faded red hair covered their chests and arms, and the faces they had were like what someone would illustrate as a mockery of mankind. No two were the same. Some had faces that were long like a horse, others were pug-like. Others more canine quality that led me to think that they might be masks, but they weren't masks. I could see as they moved and jostled. The howls that they let out were louder than any army trumpet I'd ever heard, and it seemed to shake the trees and the land itself. For the first time in a very long time, I saw my men break in fear before me as one of the creatures who was leading the charge picked one of them up with one hand and crushed his ribcage with the same ease one might crush an egg, then raised him above its head and drank the fluids that exited his chest cavity. My God, Ellen, he was still alive. I won't ever forget his screams. Our rifles and bayonets were useless against these things, even at point-blank range. They were like the hardest mountain stones, and with one wave of their arms, crushed us. 
I gave the order to retreat then, but they were on us too quickly. They vaulted from position to position, clearing large, unnatural distances, attacking Union and Confederate indiscriminately. When they charged, they rammed the men with a force so strong that they were obliterated with the same force and violence a cannon shot at point-blank range would do. My sergeant, Patrick Corbin, pulled me by my arm and helped me down the mountain, covering me with his repeating rifle fire. We didn't get very far, Ellen. One of the creatures flanked us and with all its strength charged right at us. It all happened in a second, but I remembered it all like an eternity, and my mind has thought about it constantly, recovering details of the occurrence. The creature was bear-like in his facial features, but it had humanoid anatomy, wrong as it was. I remember markings upon its chest, not tattoos, but scars as if they mutilated themselves for the look. And the smell it had I can only compare to the smell that hits you when you turn over a rotting log in the forest and expose its underbelly to the sun. That rotten, fungus, damp, moss-covered wood smell that's almost sickening. Sergeant Corbin put himself in front of me and no doubt saved my life before the thing hit us both. It obliterated him instantly, and the force from the impact sent me tumbling violently down the mountain and into the ravine where I lost consciousness, covered in Corbin's remains. When I awoke, it was deep into the night and I couldn't see anything in the pitch black. I tried to scream, but my throat was so parched from thirst that I couldn't even manage a groan. My right arm was shattered, and the pain was so strong and sharp that it kept me causing to faint sporadically. Despite my burst left eardrum, I heard those things prowling in the darkness, Ellen. I heard the ripping of flesh and crunching of bone all around me as they feasted on the dead. A wounded man yelled for help. He must have been right above my ravine. A heavy thud followed as one of the things landed near him, knocking down several trees in his way. How I wish I had gone unconscious then, as I listened as the man began to beg for his life, praying to God to save him in his desperation. I saw a flash in the darkness from the rifle the man fired in vain, and the split-second illumination afforded me the fleeting sight of the thing that ended him. It was big, bigger than the others, and much different. I try to recollect the memory in my mind to try to explain to you what it looked like, but perhaps as a mercy to my sanity, the memory of its appearance is for the most part gone. Only its enormous and grotesque shadow remains. It shrieked then, and the sound was louder than any I heard produced by them before, like the sound of a thousand church organ keys being pressed at once. It then ripped into the man so vigorously that speckles of his blood from above rained upon my face down into the ravine. My mind broke in fear then, Ellen. 
It felt as though a pair of symbols crashed inside my brain, and a white, hot, burning nothing remained. My surroundings began to spin, and I let go of everything that made me human, that made me who I am. I closed my eyes then. All I can remember after is the short windows of lucidity I had for the next few days after the battle. I remember the men in blue uniforms talking in muffled sounds, picking me up on a stretcher from the ravine, the doctor working on my arm, and the nightmares I had at night while trying to recover. I was told I was catatonic, and didn't talk for the first seven days after I was found. By the eleventh day, I was rested, fed, and medicated enough that my company commander visited me in the tent I was recovering in. He asked me for the truth of it all. Before I answered him, I asked him to tell me the condition of my men, a question all the nurses and doctors I had spoken to had avoided answering. He removed his hat, put his hand on my shoulder and told me I no longer had any men. Union cavalry that came to relieve us and reinforce us in the morning found the scene of the slaughter. They said their horses refused to go up the mountain and then proceeded on foot when they stumbled upon the killing field. They found corpses of Union and Confederate men impaled high upon the tree branches around the base of the mountain. Piles of unidentifiable remains were found stacked like firewood. The men were buried as best they could be, in mass graves that gave no distinction between Union or Confederate. I was the only survivor that was found. Only by luck when one of the cavalrymen tripped and took a tumble down the ravine I fell into. I'm not ashamed to say I gave into tears when I digested the news. Those men were as close to me as brothers, and every single time I took them to battle I valued each and every one of their lives as my own. I failed them as their captain. When I related to the commander the real truth of what occurred in battle, he only grit his teeth and nodded. I could tell he didn't quite believe me, but I know the accounts the cavalrymen reported to him made him question the reality of the transpired events. It didn't matter now, he told me. Since I did survive the battle and no Confederate did, the army considered it a Union victory, Pyrrhic as it was. It was told to the newspaper men in Washington that we valiantly dispatched Hatchet John and all his raiders, given none of them quarter and won a decisive victory. That no more would his guerrillas ride and harass our lines and kill our wounded and innocent God-fearing Union men. He told me I was to be given a commendation and promotion to major by General Grant himself and to be honorably discharged afterwards with a generous stipend befitting an officer of my rank. I refused. I told him if I was to be relieved of my command, I just wanted to return to Providence, to return to you. Reluctant as he was at first, 
He eventually agreed to the process of fast-tracking my discharge papers at a repeated insistence. While I waited for my discharge orders to arrive in camp, I made my way to the unit of cavalrymen that found me after the battle to thank them. When I finally found them, they all swarmed me with questions after finding out who I was. I sat down with them at their campfire and told them what had transpired. Upon hearing my recollection of that event, some among them gasped, some half laughed. Most stood quiet and took a drink of the whiskey bottles I bought for them in gratitude. One among them, a scout of Cherokee descent, spoke to me and hypothesized about what we may have encountered. He told me of all the mounds and stone structures that were scattered all over the mountains in Kentucky. Mounds and structures that predate any tribe that settled there. Vague childhood stories tell of an antediluvian people that once roamed all over the mountains and hollers. Perhaps with all the cannon fire we disturbed their slumber, or maybe the blood that seeped into the ground from the battle induced their appetite. None of the things I described were encountered by the cavalry when they came to reinforce my men, not even tracks to validate my story. Perhaps they went to sleep once more, or perhaps they moved on to feast elsewhere and roam the earth again, said the Cherokee scout. I vomited then, powerfully, and buckled to my knees. I apologized to them all as they helped me up and sent me to my tent. I see them now, Ellen. In my lucid dreams, I see them stalking me walking into the camp and savaging us all. The buglers in camp have caused me much distress as they remind me of their sounds. Only a solution of chloral hydrate that was given to me by the company doctor helps me sleep fast and sound enough to keep the hallucinations and nightmares at bay. I long to be with you soon, darling. And I will be, if God lets me. When I see you next, I really do hope that you'll still love me. I might be horribly broken and maimed, but there is still me inside. I know with your love, kindness, and patience I can return little by little, and with your affection, embraces, and laughter, learn to forget this war and put it behind me. Know that I love you, Ellen, deeply as always. Your husband, Captain Lawrence Thomas, 13th Rhode Island Volunteers. In our first tale, we join a pair of detectives listening over an unusual tape. Mysterious and weird cases must be frustrating for law enforcement. Sparse clues, no real rhyme, reason, or motive. They're the kinds of cases that keep investigators up at night, that stick with them long after they retire. But in this tale, 
shared with us by author Morgan Koch. When the detectives do find more answers, they may wish the case had remained unsolved. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Sarah Olivia, Jessica McAvoy, and Jeff Clement. So listen to the tapes, piece together the mystery, but beware the manifestation. is this, Hugh? Liv, I know you're exhausted, okay? Hell, I'm becoming sick of this dead-end case myself, but you've got to just trust me and listen to this. First, you need to tell me where the fuck you've been all day. You do know our day started seven hours ago, right? I've been here, sifting through our interviews and evidence all day, just trying to find the smallest hint of a lead. And then you just show up with a fucking tape recorder from the 70s like God himself handed it to you? I've been in the woods all day, Liv. Those goddamn woods that we canvassed ten different times now, and I'm tired too. But please, you just need to listen to the tape. I think I found the lead we've been looking for. (sighs) Fine. Show me. My name is Sarah K. Jennings, and I think that I might be losing my mind. I moved up to this cabin in the middle of nowhere because I was behind on my horror novel deadline and figured that the solitude would be a nice change of pace. It obviously worked. (laughs) But I feel like the more I write, the worse it gets. I've been waking up at odd hours of the night to loud creaking noises down the hall, seeing things out of the corner of my eye. I sound so paranoid when I say it all out loud. I think the solitude might be getting to me. I don't know, I'm just being stupid. So that was... Sarah, yes. I woke up last night from a dead sleep and got this urge to go back to the woods that her editor said she had rented a cabin in. After a few hours, I found the recorder wedged in the dirt just off the main trail. It's the strangest thing. It's been out there for how long? Just laying beneath the dirt and decaying leaves, and the thing is still in perfect condition. So she obviously felt like her life was being threatened and was paranoid at the very least. Is there more, Hugh? Yeah, there's more, but... But what? Hugh? Tell me. It's just... The rest of the tape becomes more and more concerning. I don't know how to explain it. I don't think I can explain it. Well, this is the biggest break we've had in the case in over a month. Let's keep going. I was just starting to fall asleep. I had shut the door to my room before getting into bed, and everything was fine. Everything is fine. It has to be fine. God. Okay. 
suddenly, I felt a hand brush through my hair. I tried not to open my eyes, and then, a moment later, the door handle turned and opened. paranoid. She was writing a horror novel and her imagination took a hold of her. That doesn't explain where she disappeared to and why we still can't find that fucking house she supposedly rented. There's more to the tape, Liv. All right, Hugh. Start the tape back up again. theories. You're not going to like them. Liv, I just can't explain this away. If it's a hoax, then it's a damn convincing one. She sounds petrified, and you heard the footsteps yourself. She must have been being stalked, right? I'm not so sure about that.
Maybe if I don't show fear, there won't be anything for them to feed off. And I'll make it through tonight. No, I shouldn't have turned all the lights on. I just feel exposed. You can't do anything to me! You can't hurt me! did we just listen to? She wasn't paranoid, Liv. She really did manifest these things into her life. Uh, what does this mean for us? For the case? We can't just say she was murdered by a bunch of demons, you. I... And where the fuck was she living? There is no goddamn cabin in those woods. They're empty, Hugh. I know, Liv. I know. And I'm just as confused as you are. I have no idea why I felt like canvassing those woods today and why I just stumbled onto this tape. I'm scared, Liv. Jane, did the recorder just... Fuck. Isolation. It can get to you. We've all been through it lately, for obvious reasons. But imagine being on an island, the only one there, and you can't leave because the safety of numerous others requires you stay. And in this tale, shared with us by author E.E.W. E. Chrisman, we meet one such man who works in a lighthouse 
and discovers how the solitude affected his predecessor in terrifying ways. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, and Atticus Jackson. So let's join Arnold as he listens to the words of Jebediah. Are these merely notes from a lonely man, or are they a portentous warning for Arnold himself, whose future is darkened by the shadow of the Keeper? Humans aren't meant for a solitary life. Isolation warps the mind. It casts long shadows across the psyche, perverting a bland reality until it becomes something intoxicating. For the brain, being afraid is preferable than being dulled. So loneliness sparks something sinister, turning every creaking floorboard and hooting owl into countless monsters. A bored mind plays cruel tricks. Arnold wished he could tell Jebediah Winters that, but the former lighthouse keeper only existed in a shoebox of old cassette tapes he'd found in the back of a closet. Jebediah's voice came in gruffly through the tape player from across nearly two decades. The tapes had been recorded from 1969 to 1974, all meticulously labeled and organized. They were Jebediah's own personal diary and Arnold's favorite pastime. He'd hesitated when he first found them. It really did feel like reading someone's private diary. But curiosity and the lack of repercussions won out. Arnold played the first tape. At first, there was nothing, just 20-year-old static. Then someone, the old keeper Arnold presumed, cleared their throat for several seconds. When you spend so much time not speaking, you have to warm up first. The keeper began. Hello. This is Jebediah Winters. Uh, It's fucking freezing in here. I'm making soup and the stupid wind keeps coming in through the damn window and blowing out the burner. And (laughs) I swear to God, I'm going to have to heat this chowder in a goddamn furnace. Anyway, I bought this recorder and saw it at the general store and thought, hey, now someone will have to listen to me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to fix this damn window. Out. The old keeper recorded his musings, his thoughts, his recipes. He'd been a pretty competent baker. He cursed at his oven and the general upkeep of the lighthouse and always ended each entry with a curt, out. While Arnold maintained the Fern Harbor Lighthouse, Jebediah's cranky voice kept him company. Well, the damn buttermilk biscuits burned. This oven barely qualifies. I should push it into the sea. Out. Arnold used to listen to the radio while he cleaned and maintained the integrity of his lighthouse. But Jebediah's soothing, familiar frustration passed the time just as well as any talk show and cut through the hours better than music. He felt a little pang of guilt every time he put in a new tape, fresh with the old keeper's most private thoughts, even if his most private thoughts usually only amounted to grumbling at the generator or his kitchen appliances. Arnold suspected Jebediah wouldn't have minded, though. Keeper to keeper, they both understand the burden of loneliness. 
He might even have been thrilled that Arnold found comfort in his little hobby. By 1974, Jebediah's time, the former keeper was becoming skittish. His voice had grown quieter, more furtive, as if Jebediah was constantly looking over his shoulder, checking for some unseen enemy. The tapes used to be mostly short entries, little asides that Jebediah would add throughout the day. Now, or then, he was filling up an entire tape each day as he failed to sleep. He complained he could only manage to stay unconscious for a few hours at a time, so he spent his nights speaking into his little recorder, describing half-remembered nightmares to no one. Seagull shot on my sun hat. I swear to God I'm going to buy a pellet gun the next time I go into town. Out. Arnold wished he could tell him that it wasn't monsters that disturbed him, simply human loneliness. Arnold wished he could tell him that he'd felt the same way before, that this job was hard on the brain and strained the imagination as your mind wandered, hungry to fill the time with anything, even horrors. But Jebediah was long gone. Only the tapes remained. Jebediah's voice was heavy and low, like the dark, fat rain clouds clinging to the horizon. Storm's coming. Arnold had first noticed the approaching storm several days ago, and had already made an unscheduled trip into Fern Harbor for more supplies. On the map, Arnold's little island was labeled simply as Fern Harbor Lighthouse. The locals had a different name for it, though. Last Chance Rock. From the shore, the lighthouse was no more than a craggy outcropping in the water, with a stone spire sticking out the top. Arnold had to take the boat whenever he needed anything, and in a storm he'd be utterly alone and completely cut off. The storm of 1974 coinciding with Arnold's storm was an odd coincidence that made Arnold's blood run a little colder. Perhaps not so odd, he kept telling himself, as he cleaned the glass windows of the lantern room from the outer gallery, the wind already whipping at his back. Storms weren't unusual. Storms happened a lot near Fern Harbor. What was odd was Jebediah's trepidation. The isolation of Last Chance Rock was clearly weighing heavily upon him, creeping into his mind like an infection. First his nightmares, now his obsession with this storm. His voice quavered as he spoke. Can't see it yet, but his nose don't lie, and the smell of a sea storm is unmistakable. Salty and electric. Couldn't sleep last night. Every time my eyes closed, it felt like someone was watching me through the window. There's nobody else on this rock, and why would anyone come out here? I just walked around the perimeter anyway, and there are no boats moored anywhere. So, I'm going to try to take a nap. Out. Humans want company, Arnold thought. Even the unsavory, invasive kind. An isolated brain will invent intruders to stave off loneliness. Arnold had a hard time sleeping as well. Most keepers he knew did. Poor lonely Jebediah, Arnold mused as he reached for another tape. All he had was his tape recorder. What does it say about me, Arnold thought, if all I have are Jebediah's tapes? 
There was something primordial in Jebediah's voice tonight, something akin to a rabbit hiding in its burrow. Not fear, but something like it. The drive to survive in the face of perceived danger. Saw someone last night. No one visits the rock, and, and they, they'd be crazy to try in this weather. I went out to see who the fuck it was, and figured some idiot had taken their boat out for a joy ride and drifted off course. But, uh, but there was no one there. I walked around the whole damn island, and no one was there. Ah. <sighs> I'm getting old. Seeing shit in the dark. Out. The sun was setting, although the coast was already under a dark blanket of shadows and mist. The locals mostly stayed away from the beach with the impending storm. It was too cold and wet to enjoy it much. Arnold spotted the odd stubborn jogger or dog walker, but mostly only in the mornings. Arnold squinted out the kitchen window pausing as he prepared his meager dinner of spaghetti and meat sauce. It was hard to make out, but there was definitely a figure out on the dunes. Not running or stretching or doing anything at all. Just standing there, watching the rising seawater. Watching me. Arnold dismissed the knee-jerk thought. It was a simple thing to scare yourself. The simplest thing to imagine monsters where none existed. The figure returned to the beach the following night, even with the rain coming down in sheets and the wind sending the sand into the air like a whip. They seemed closer to the water this time, closer to Last Chance Rock. I know what I saw. Arnold paused the cleaning of the lenses, Windex at the ready in his hand, listening. If anyone listens to these... They'll think I'm crazy, but I swear I saw someone outside the kitchen last night. They were standing on the rocks, and they were watching me. When I opened the door, they were gone. If you hear these tapes and get the hell off this island, something already lives here. I leave, but the storm has me trapped. Once there's any kind of opening, I'm taking the boat, going to town, and I'm never coming back. Out. Jebediah's anxiety was growing. Arnold had a feeling he knew the end of this story. He could see old Jebediah. He had no idea what the man looked like, but he'd painted a picture of a grizzled gray man with a pot belly in his mind, chasing shadows around a lighthouse before finally setting off in his boat in the middle of a storm. Survivalist folly, driven away by bad dreams. The rain never stopped the previous night. The morning only brought the crackle of thunder and a frothing, angry ocean. As he finished wiping the lighthouse's lenses, Arnold glanced across the sea at the beach. Jet-colored water crashed into the sand. As Arnold watched the hypnotic back and forth of the ocean, he realized the person was back. The stormy beachwalker had returned. They were on the dark sand, right up to the waterline. The water must have been going up to their knees, but they didn't move. Arnold got up to get a better look, 
but by the time he reached the other side of the lighthouse, the person had disappeared. Gone home, he told himself. It was crazy to be out in this weather in the first place. But it was impossible to forget Jebediah's warning. Somebody already lives here. Arnold turned towards the ladder. Dreams. Bad, lonely dreams. The storm had taken its time. It had prowled just out of sight, growing and churning and preparing. Even when it began moving, the clouds seemed to take their time rolling across the sea toward land. There had been an overture of rain and wind yesterday, and when the storm finally came in the dark hours of the morning, it stretched and flexed across the beach. It smothered Fern Harbor in a titanic downpour, punctuated by tree-toppling winds. And it hit Last Chance Rock. It hit the rock hard. Sea nearly reached the front door, the white-topped waves crashing into rocks and the beach beyond, the crescendo of water meeting land nearly deafening. The ocean cast the lighthouse in a thunderous cacophony of water that threatened to drown the tiny island at any moment. The light pierced the murky skies, but Arnold was more worried for his little home than any boats out at sea at the moment. There was only one tape left. Arnold had put it in the little tape player, but hesitated hitting play. Jebediah's storm had been reaching its zenith, as had his paranoia. Scary stories combined with isolation were bad enough. At a storm, and Arnold knew he wouldn't be able to keep his own fear at bay. Eventually, though, his curiosity got the better of him. He played the tape, leaning forward to hear Jebediah's voice over the roar of the rain outside. He was quiet, whispering. His voice shook. Arnold could barely make out what he was saying. It's here. It's in the lighthouse. I'm not sure how. None of the windows and doors were open. Hell, I've been locking them tight each night. Some rain came in, though, through the leaky roof. Maybe that's how. I'm... I'm not gonna make it. I, I lock myself in the bathroom, but I can hear it outside. I'll try to kill it, but... I, Jebediah trailed off for a full minute, the only sound coming from the second storm. The howling wind sounded more like a scratching record on the old tape. Finally, Jebediah spoke again. If you hear this, I guess that means that I didn't beat the damn demon. So, I'll tell you what I know. It comes with the storm. Or the storm comes with it. I, I can't be sure. It can go where the storm goes. I thought I'd be safe inside. I figured that out the other night. Had to go check the generator and fuck me if that thing wasn't waiting for me. Yeah, it followed me up to the door, but it wouldn't go any further. Didn't even try to open it. It just stared at me through the window. For hours. But I didn't fix the leak in the storeroom. The lighthouse has got to be airtight. Or it'll get in. Jebediah's voice stopped. Arnold could hear something. Like someone knocking. It's here. 
whoever you are. Don't let it in. There's one more thing. It sat outside all night waiting for me. I was so scared. I couldn't move. I was on the floor, just staring back. I don't know how, but I, I can't remember what it looked like. Uh, I was there all night on the floor and I can't remember a damn thing. Except its eyes. Jebediah was interrupted as the door splintered apart. His words turned into a mangled scream as he struggled with whoever had broken down the door. It didn't take long, however, for even that to fade into garbled, struggling breaths. And finally, a definitive silence, only broken by the wind from the recorded storm. Arnold thought that the wind sounded like panting, hungry, primal panting. Then the tape clicked, and that was the last recorded message from Jebediah Winters. Arnold sat for a long time, listening to his own storm, trying to convince himself that it was just the wind he heard. No one outside, combing across the lighthouse, looking for a way in. He couldn't bring himself to look at the windows. The thought of seeing a pair of eyes staring back at him made his heart race. Then he thought about the storeroom. He couldn't remember if he'd ever noticed a leak. Ridiculous dreams, Arnold thought as he stood up. But a cocktail of curiosity and fear compelled him to look. It was a reasonable thing, after all, for a keeper to check for leaks. He might have done it anyhow. Arnold ignored the shaking in his hand as he opened the storeroom door. He looked at the ceiling, but saw no water. Then he meticulously checked the floor, moving boxes in search of even the tiniest puddles. When he was sure there were none, the tension he hadn't realized he'd been carrying in his shoulders released. Arnold didn't believe in monsters, but he was, after all, a cautious man. After the storeroom, he checked all the doors and windows. The lighthouse was dry. He decided to check on the light. Checking the storeroom had alleviated some of his anxiety, but Arnold still didn't want his mind to wander. Best to stay busy. Each step upward raised his spirits, as if Jebediah's dire warning was falling from him as he climbed the stairs. The black storm clouds utterly engulfed the shore. The sea whipped at the sand and rocks, a dark, undulating mass of water eager to reshape whatever it came into contact with. Yet from the lantern room, all he could really make out was his own reflection. Arnold stepped closer to the glass, squinting at the rain and lightning outside. As his eyes pierced the veil of glass and light, Arnold jumped back, a scream escaping his throat before he could stop it. Pressed up against the glass was... someone. Their form was ephemeral, morphing with the wind. Yet, there was the unmistakable imprint of hands on glass. Their skin was the color of a thick winter fog, but as Arnold tried to focus on any one feature, it seemed to grow murky and opaque, as if it refused to be seen clearly. He stumbled down the spiral stairs, putting as much building between him and the thing clinging to the exterior of the lighthouse. Arnold hoped Jebediah had been right, that as long as the lighthouse was leak-free and he remained inside, he'd be safe until the storm passed. 
if the storm passed, Arnold thought as he reached the first floor. Did the storm come with the creature, or did the creature come with the storm? How long could it wait outside? Days? Weeks? If that was the case, it was only a matter of time before the rain and the wind pried something loose. The eyes, Arnold thought through his panic. Jebediah was right about the eyes. follow them. Rules of the law, of the road, of engagement. Sometimes, though, you find yourself faced with rules you're unaware of or don't understand. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jos Isaacson, we learn what to do if you find yourself using certain public transport at a certain time of day. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Nicole Goodnight. So don't worry if you end up putting yourself in a situation where you have no idea what to do. The guide will help you. But it's always better to remember, do not take the last train home. have them, whether it be the bustling subway of metropolitan melting pots like New York City or the overground trains of London that will take you to the farthest reaches of the city where the tube dares not venture. If you are lucky and if your city has deep pockets, the train will be new and caught up with modern technology. It may be painted a deep, metallic green to make it feel like you're zooming through a jungle instead of focusing on the growing mass of human flesh pushing its way through the carriages during the early morning rush hour. You sit down on an empty seat, put on your airpods and drift away until you reach your destination. Other trains, though, they aren't quite so pleasant. You know the kind. We've all heard the deafening squeaking of the ancient and rusty doors as they desperately try to open. If you're lucky, you'll manage to get on without a scratch, but if you misjudge your footing or get the time wrong by just a second, you might find yourself caught between the sliding doors as the train is ready to set off without you. Unlike the modern counterparts, the overwhelming mishmash of sweat, stress, and yesterday's booze lingers in the air. Let's not forget the added stench of urine from the drunkard sitting at the far end of the carriage. Everyone tries not to look, but we all know he's there, wearing a worn-out, bleached brown leather coat, stretched out at the seams and barely holding together. Most of us are so ingrained in our habits that we rarely, if ever, think beyond our own bubbles. The train you board on the dot every day is not the only one. 
There are many others. Have you ever wondered about the last train home? You know the one I mean. The one that shows up on the platform minutes after the alleged last train was supposed to leave. You've almost given up waiting, but when you hear the whistling of the engines break, you can't help but be curious about this newcomer that isn't supposed to be here. Except for yourself, the platform is empty, and an eerie silence fills the air. You don't necessarily want to be there, but it's like your feet can't help but move forward. The longing for your warm mattress is strong, and you can't help but wonder what harm could it possibly do. It's just another train. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that despite what else you've been told to do not get on the last train home, you can't trust your instinct on this one. That's exactly what it wants. It needs to lure you inside to a place where you can't escape, but you have a choice, hmm? If, against better judgment, you do find yourself on board that last train, here's what you need to do to survive. It's crucial that you follow these steps to the letter, otherwise yours will be just another tragic fate in a long line of those who did not heed this warning. <clears throat> Surviving the last train home. A how-to guide. I really wish it wouldn't have come to this, but nevertheless, here we are. Don't worry, I'm not just going to abandon you, I'm here to help. As long as you follow this guide to a T, you'll probably be fine. There's only been a handful of deaths in the past decade, so the odds are actually in your favor. You've probably figured out by now that this isn't a normal train. <laughs> Although they do say that normal is relative. I wish I could tell you more about it, except that nobody really knows its origin. The only thing we know for sure is that it follows the same pattern, and has done so for over a century, perhaps longer. At first I thought it was just something particular to this city, but all the reports and encounters I've read about proves that's not the case. It is always the same, though. After the final train has supposedly left the platform, usually around or after midnight, it'll show up. There is no time stamp on the departure display, and so you never know where it's come from or where it's going. Hmm. An ocean of grey and odorless smoke fills the platform as the doors slide open. From within the train, there is a sort of dim light, which means it's probably one of those old subways from the early 80s. It's painted a midnight shade of blue and lingers on the platform until somebody decides to come aboard. That's you, in this case. I did tell you to turn around, but alas, here we are. Inside, it's completely empty and a different kind of cold settles on your chest as your body automatically sinks into the old brown seats. Seconds later, the train takes off, and the platform eventually fades away until all that remains is darkness and the dim light of the train. Minutes pass by, and the first thing you'll notice is that the train hasn't stopped anywhere yet. Which is odd in itself, because you know this route so well. You assume that perhaps it's a different schedule because it's so late at night, and so you settle in for the journey, assuming you'll eventually reach your destination. 
Uh, this is where the guide comes in handy. Uh, you, you will reach your final stop, but only if you follow these steps. Listen carefully and make sure you've not missed out, because your life is dependent on even the smallest detail. Step one, the conductor. Now, this one is relatively easy. Everyone knows you need a ticket to board a train, and before you panic, you have one. Just check in your pocket, and it'll be there. When the conductor walks through the carriage, he'll stop right in front of you, and he won't ask. He will just wait for you to present the ticket to him. You'll know exactly who the conductor is, because he'll wear an old-fashioned buttoned waistcoat, a suit, and even a black hat with a gold inscription on it. Give him the ticket, wait for him to stamp and return it to you. Don't bother asking how many stops until your destination. You'll only get silence. If you want to, you can say, Fine day, isn't it, sir? At which he'll nod and leave you alone. However, just because he's gone doesn't mean you can discard your ticket. Hold on to it and make sure you do not lose it. Your life literally depends on it. Just like you can't board without a ticket, you also can't leave without one. I've only heard of one encounter when one poor bastard didn't have a ticket to show the conductor. Some days later, railway workers found the man's body cut up, all the intestinal organs spewing out and a finger missing, you know? <laughs> the worst part, though, is the fact that his body hadn't so much been, you know, laying on the ground as it had uh, sunk into it. His right hand reached out of the ground as if he was trying to claw himself back up from whatever was pulling him down. Do not lose your ticket. Step two, the, uh, <clears throat> the children. Feeling warmed up yet? Good, 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 because it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. You know, we've all been on those tiresome train commutes where somebody's kid or baby won't stop screaming or causing mayhem. You know, the ones whose mother looks exhausted with perpetual circles under her eyes and with hair that seems to become more gray by the week. This is a little bit like that, except that these particular children might rip your throat out if you don't play along with it. Though, who doesn't like a quick game of hide-and-seek? Hmm? It's honestly not that bad. Once you've settled into the journey a bit, you'll begin to hear echoing laughter at the end of the carriage. Now, when you turn to look, there's nobody there. But when you turn back, there will be a little girl in front of you. It's, uh, it's, uh, difficult to determine her age, but she might be around six or seven years old, wearing a pink tutu and a blue top. Her brown hair is in pigtails, and, <laughs> at a glance, she looks like a completely normal child. Play a game with me? She'll ask you this with her hands behind her back. Now, at first, it seems like she's fluttering her eyelashes at you, but when you look closer, you'll notice she has no eyes. No, 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 only empty sockets where her eyes should be. You have two choices. If you say, no thank you, she'll, uh, she'll look disappointed. She'll disappear for a bit and, and then come back. This time, more persistent. Please play a game with me. Mommy doesn't want to. 
Now this is where you should say, Sure, I'd love to play. What do you have in mind? Hiding and seek, of course. I'll count to ten and you go hide. One, two... Now I know what you're thinking. Where on earth can you hide on a moving train? If you leave your seat and walk a few paces ahead, you'll notice a storage space where bags and uh, suitcases would normally be placed. Crouch down and hide in the dark. Once you hear the count finish, wait a few moments until you feel a tap on your shoulder. Found you. That was fun. The little girl should disappear, and you're free to return to your seat. That seems silly, but it's much easier to play along with this for your own sake. The last person who made it this far and didn't play with her was found with their vocal cords pulled out of their throat. <sighs> Bled out. Slow. Step three, the tunnel. Okay, excellent. We're halfway through. You're doing great. And if you keep this up, you'll be home in no time. I bet you're looking forward to that cozy bed of yours, huh? Well, there are a few things we've got to pass first, mind you. And this is where it begins to get a little more difficult. There is a tunnel coming up in a few moments, and this one is different from all the others we've passed so far. I, um... <laughs> I can't quite prepare you for it, because it's different for everyone who passes through. My best advice for you is to not follow the voices. Whatever you may hear, stay in your seat. Do not look out the window. Do not answer them, and do not get up on your feet. I know it'll be tempting, because they will sound like your loved ones crying out for help or asking you to join them. If you follow the voices or, or do what they tell you, well, yeah, uh, you'll become one of them. Your loved ones are safe and sound at home, and I promise you will see them at the end of this. Do not trust the voices of the damned. Step four, the smell. Time flies a bit differently on board, you may have noticed. You haven't stopped anywhere since boarding, but don't worry, we're almost there. It seems like the tunnel lasted forever, but thankfully you've made it through. Congratulations, you've got more strength than most others, and I am very proud of you. I'm sorry to say it's, uh, it's not quite over yet. After the tunnel, I'm glad to say all you have to do is sit back down for a bit. There is no need to get up or worry about the voices of the damned. In fact, I'd urge you not to move at all for the next few moments. For the first time since departure, the train will begin to slow down and arrive at a platform similar to the one you boarded from. It's been a long night, and I understand you're keen to get home or be tempted by the possibility of grabbing a cab, but this, this isn't somewhere you want to get off. Instead, wait for the next passenger to come on board. You'll notice him immediately, if not by his appearance, then by the sulfuric odor that uh, follows him. If you've ever been in the presence of rotting flesh that's been left out in the sun, it's a little bit like that. On the outside, he appears to be a tall gentleman, perhaps six foot, wearing a brown military coat down to his ankles and dark, dark sunglasses covering his face, despite there being no sunlight. 
He's wearing black leather gloves on his hands and walks with trudging footsteps towards the empty seat next to you where he will eventually slump down. In the corner of your eyes, you might notice movement from within his coat, as if it were uh, filled with some kind of life. And if you take a closer look at his face, you'll also notice he has no ears. It would be wise to not draw your attention to him, nor react to his smell. Do not cover your mouth, do not change your seat, and most importantly, do not make eye contact with him. Don't let him look into your eyes. If you are wondering where that uh, distant human screaming is coming from, you're absolutely right about his stomach. Don't worry, he'll only stay on for one stop. And once he gets off at the next platform, you're free to relax. He only wants the weak souls anyway. Ooh, so step five, the sleep. Finally, you're alone in the carriage, and after a more than eventful journey, you can rest. Oh, just be sure not to rest too much, because you don't want to miss your stops. Eventually, the gentle lulling of the train will relax you, and it feels comfortable to just lean back against the chair. But you should stay awake. <laughs> Don't let the calm lure you into a false sense of security, because that's exactly what it wants. No matter how heavy your body or how weary your bones feel, fight it. You know that one song from The Sound of Music? You know. I am 16 going on 17. I know that I'm naive. Got it? If you hum that to yourself, it'll keep you awake until you've survived the sleep. <laughs> I know, I know. Just trust me on this one. Whatever you do, don't close your eyes. Find something to focus on and keep singing. <laughs> uh, if you fall asleep, you will never wake up, and your body and soul will be forever attached to the train. Step six, the end. Well, I'm happy to say you finally made it to the end. See, I told you it was easy enough if you just follow the steps. Huh? Do you remember what I said at the beginning about the ticket? Hmm? Make sure it's still in your pocket where you left it because the conductor will come back for it. It would be silly to have made it this far and then fail just because of a piece of paper. Ticket, please, the conductor will say. And when you give it to him, he'll stamp it again. But instead of giving it back to you, he'll keep it. Shh, shh, shh. Thank you for traveling with us, he says. And the doors slide open, huh? Thankfully, it's the platform you hoped for, and once you step off the train, you'll hear the doors closing behind you. I wouldn't look back at it if I were you. Even if you forgot something on your seat, or you think you're at the wrong station, do not look back and keep walking. You'd better pray I don't find you aboard my train again.
In our final tale, we meet Jim. Jim is a real estate agent, and let's be honest, he's not really qualified for the job. He had no other options, but his co-workers are snarky, his performance is middling, and his boss is riding him to get something, anything, done. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matt Tai. Maybe this explains why Jim doesn't question certain weird stipulations about renting out a particular property. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Mick Wingert, Nicole Goodnight, Aaron Lillis, Wafia White, and Mike Delgadio. So don't worry. Tell the client it's all fine. Don't go digging too deep into this house's history. The same tragedy won't happen twice, right? You're not signing a death warrant. You're simply renting space. The room is dim, but not really dark. The sun hasn't quite gone down yet, and I can see it through the front window large and orange, and seeming to bulge as it sinks behind the buildings across the street. There's enough of that baleful, feverish light to just read what I'm writing. It's so quiet I can hear my pencil scratching across the paper. I know what people say about real estate agents. It's no big secret. Pushy, disingenuous. But I can tell you it's a cutthroat business. I'm new to it, And I've got to say, it's the very first thing you learn. Those wide, fake smiles turn into maniacal grins when you're back in the office. The air smells of desperation and sweat. But I'm sitting here now to say, flat out, I would never do something that would get someone killed. I'm writing it down. I want it all documented. And I'm going to find out the truth. At least I'll know. That'll be something, at least. Like I said, I'm new to the business, and to be honest, I'm not passionate about it. It's not my calling. I suppose that's my problem. I'm not passionate about anything, really. My father used to say that a lot. But I don't want to spend time going over my background. One, it's boring. Two, it's getting darker. And I don't want to switch the light on. That will make sense to you in a bit, I guess. Suffice to say, my story is short and sad and cliched. My school career was sad and hollow. An exercise in treading water in a pool I couldn't find the edge of. Despite that, I found myself finishing high school both successfully, just, and with a girlfriend who I loved, and who I was sure loved me back. We would beat this nasty unfair world together. Cue the power ballad. She went to university. I had no desire to swim from a shallow pool of learning out into the middle of the ocean, so I followed but mooched around, holding down a handful of low-paying, zero-reward positions. If you'd asked me what I was about and what my goals were, I wouldn't have been able to answer. I guess I still can't answer that. Although right now, I'd say I want answers. That, more than anything. I handed out flyers, 
I delivered pizzas. I even washed cars. I saw less of my soulmate than I did of sweaty kitchens and print shops. And even when I made it home early enough, she never seemed to be there. The writing on the wall couldn't have been in larger print, but I was still floored when she left me. Or demanded I leave her and her apartment. She wasn't even upset. She just had a kind of relief on her face that I couldn't argue with. I won't dwell on it. It's boring and also typical, but it also hurts a lot. I couldn't go home. My parents would take me in, but I knew I'd seen a version of that same relief on their faces when I had said adios to them not too long ago. That hurt, too, but I suppose I couldn't really blame them. I was a bit of a space filler. So I did what I always did, and I went on autopilot. I tried not to think of anything, and I doubled down on work. I moved out, taking over a lease on a tiny studio apartment from a thin, pale girl who seemed two steps down the road from where I was. She left literally dragging her belongings in a bag behind her. Watching her go scared me. I went to work with a hollow sort of gusto. I delivered food. I swept floors. I even caught some shifts at the recycling center, sorting paper and plastic. Some nights I fell asleep stinking of fried rice and moldy paper. I was the hardest working slacker in existence, but I was still going broke. I cast about for something in my desperation, but I kept coming up empty. The months just after university had started for the year was a dismal time to be searching for unqualified work in a university town. I could afford, barely, to work and live with a frugal and loving partner who would quietly bear most of the burden, but on my own I was quickly drowning. Finally, after a breakfast of cold, undelivered pizza and a rummage for a rumpled t-shirt that smelt more like Chinese food than garbage, I went in to try and explain the situation to my real estate agent. The place I was living was little more than a closet, but I couldn't afford it. God knew what I thought I was going to do. I couldn't break my lease, I couldn't pay my rent. If the receptionist hadn't been at lunch, I probably would have been out on my ear in 30 seconds. But the desk was empty, and I stood there, unsure of what to do. I guess I was hoping for the hand of God, and in a weird way I got it. The hand of Thompson. She's out to lunch. I started and looked up. A head was poking around the corner of the hallway behind the receptionist's desk. A big, bald, shockingly white head. It looked huge, actually, because his features were all crowded in the middle of his smooth face. Little pug nose, beady eyes, thin lips. Huge, bushy eyebrows. One of those faces that leave you increasingly bewildered the more you look at it as you wonder how such a configuration of features could exist. But he was smiling slightly, and even as I stared at him, he slipped around the corner and stepped toward me. He was dressed in a gray suit with a light blue tie. He was thin enough that his head looked unsteady and massively out of proportion. He leaned on the receptionist's desk, and I swear, his eyes seemed to twinkle a bit. Let me guess. Rent problems? I nodded. I had no idea what to say. 
I was suddenly very aware of the smell of sweet and sour pork rising up from my shirt. He tapped the desk for a moment. His eyes were friendly and thoughtful. You know, I've seen you before. Not here. I saw you driving the pizza delivery car from Romero's, yes? I nodded, and he nodded in return. It was like watching one of those drinking bird ornaments with the bulbous bobbing head. Mesmerizing. And handing out flyers for the coffee shop? I nodded again. He nodded again. We both nodded again. How many jobs do you have? I shrugged. Added them all up and they were still less than one. (laughs) I said so and he laughed. There was a bell over the door. One of the little old-fashioned silver jobs that tinkled when the door opened. It did its thing now and I turned around to see the receptionist. Her face clouded slightly when she saw me. It wasn't the first time I'd been late on the rent, but then her gaze drifted beyond me and she smiled, professional and fake and devoid of all real emotion. Mr. Thompson, I can take care of this. But he waved the idea away with one hand and then pointed to the corridor with the other. No need. I'd actually like to chat with... He looked pointedly at me, and after a moment I realized he was waiting for my name. Uh, Jim. He nodded. And before I knew it, I was being ushered down the corridor. But what am I doing? I said I needed to hurry, and you don't need to know all this. Summarize, summarize, that's what I should be doing. I'm squinting at the paper in front of me as I go. I might need to turn the light on. I know the power is still on, but I don't want anyone looking in and seeing the light. I'd rather just finish. Jerry Thompson owned the real estate. He seemed nice at first. I couldn't smell the sweat and desperation in his office. I guess it was too far from the bullpen where the three more junior staff worked at sales and rentals. Sales brought in the bucks. Rentals gave us the constant trickle of cash that made the banks happy with our wildly fluctuating bottom line. That's what Mr. Thompson said. He said other things, too, while we sat in his sterile office, and I watched his giant head bob up and down. But it all boiled down to one thing. He was short a person. He wouldn't lie. Staff turnover in the business was high, but it could be good for someone who worked hard. He couldn't pay me much, but the figure he trotted out seemed astronomical to me. Trial basis, and I'd have to do some real estate course to get accredited. And he dropped me like a sack of something unpleasant if I didn't stack up. And what do I think about it all? I said, yes, of course I did. What choice did I really have? I could have gone home, but like I said, that wasn't very appealing. The offer really did seem like a godsend. We shook on it, I filled out a bunch of paperwork, and I got an advance. I bought a cheap suit and turned up early the next day. It took two weeks for me to stop smelling Chinese food and pizza every time I breathed deeply. 
I don't know if that was real or just in my mind. But I wasn't game to ask anyone about it. And I was really too anxious to dwell on body odor. I guess I should have questioned the whole thing. I mean, who hires someone like that? The other staff didn't bat an eyelid when Mr. Thompson introduced me around the next morning. They smiled and nodded and said the pleasant things you say when your boss is watching you interact with someone. A slightly puffy woman named Julie in a too tight pantsuit gave me two huge binders, smiling a bit too widely as she did so. One was for studying, rules and procedures and frequently asked questions. It was all very well laid out and, now that I think of it, very well thumbed. I wondered how many versions of me had been through that office. The second binder was actually where the trouble started. Started and I guessed finished as well. The binder listed our current rentals, and that was where I was to start. Julie sat next to me as I browsed our collection. She was still smiling too widely. Her eyebrows were plucked so razor thin, it looked like she had creases above her eyes. It's a bad time to start. It took me a moment to register the meaning of what she said against her bonkers, cheerful demeanor. She wouldn't stop smiling. Her teeth were very white. Over the next few weeks, I would find myself more and more smiling that same smile. It just kind of permeated throughout the office. Smiling at clients, smiling at Mr. Thompson, smiling insanely at the other people in the office. I would go to sleep with my face hurting from it. What do you mean? She shrugged, still smiling, but her eyes seemed almost blank. Like she'd been through this routine before and was just trotting it all out once again. The students are all here. Best time to fill rentals was three months ago, but we need to drop our vacancies. Too high. What do I need to do? One a week. Fill one vacancy a week? It didn't seem that hard. She kept smiling as she stood up, but her eyes had already drifted away. She brushed some imaginary creases from the front of her suit. I don't know why she bothered. It was so tight there was no way a wrinkle could worm its way into the fabric. I couldn't do it. Looking back, it was absurd. Not the task itself, but me being in the position. I guess Thompson's approach was the the shit-to-the-wall type of management. You know, throw it, see what sticks. In this case, the shit was me, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't going to be the sticking type. I felt useless from the outset. I kept thinking of a documentary I'd seen when I was a kid. It was about a spider that sat and waited for prey to come close enough for it to grab. At the time, it had seemed kind of cool, a minimal effort kind of evolution. But as I sat with that binder in my stupid gray cubicle, I wondered how long a spider like that could last in a world devoid of prey. The days ticked by, smiles abounded. People were busy talking on phones, showing clients around, even making sales, but hardly anyone seemed to be interested in rentals. I showed a few properties to dull-eyed browsers. As the days turned first into one week and then two, Mr. Thompson was not smiling anymore. Not at me, anyway.
You've got to fill some vacancies. He said this after he called me into his office. He looked concerned, but it was a shallow look that didn't reach his eyes. Mr. Thompson, I I don't know what to do. No one is coming in. No one is calling. He smiled then, but it looked different, tighter, firmer. Suddenly, his large head and small features did not look so comical. His small eyes didn't twinkle. They'd gone flat. Ah, so you thought you just needed to sit and wait. I did not know if it was a statement or a question. I stayed silent. He fell silent. We were silent together. I told you this was a good job for someone who worked hard. You seemed like you were a hard worker. Was I wrong? I shook my head, but inside I wondered. Maybe I wasn't doing enough. Maybe I didn't want to. I thought of my girlfriend and it hurt. What else did I have? Julie says it's a bad time to start. I tried to call back the words even as I said them, but it was too late. Mr. Thompson was definitely not smiling now. He stared at me hard and then raised one finger. Fill a vacancy. You have until the end of the week. You can do it, Jim. I stood to leave. Oh, and send Julie in, would you? Julie still smiled at me after that, but it looked like she'd bitten into a rotten pear when she did it. I didn't mind much. I figured I probably wouldn't be there much longer to be smiled at anyway. I spent the afternoon staring at my binder of vacancies. It had way too many pages in it, but that didn't even seem to matter. Hardly anyone was looking. I sat there as the office slowly quieted around me. Eventually, I was just sitting there alone, avoiding going back to my cupboard of an apartment. When I heard the little bell over the door tinkle, bright and silvery. I had to stop writing for a minute. That thick orange light from the sinking sun had been fading slowly, and then it was suddenly fading fast. I was squinting at the page, trying to see what I was doing, and then I realized I was surrounded by nothing but shadows. I've turned the light on. I look back over the pages I've written, and I haven't even gotten to what I really need to say. I hope no one sees the light, but I'm going to risk it. I don't like it, and not just because I'm worried someone will see me in here. From here, I can see the dark rectangle of the hallway. It's too hard to see anything out there now against the light, but it's sitting like an open sore at the edge of my vision. I can hear the scratching of the pencil as I write, just like before. But I have to admit I'm straining to hear something else. Maybe I want to hear something.
Anyway, the bell tinkled, and I sighed and pushed myself up away from my desk. I held the binder in one hand without noticing. We're closed. Although I still rounded the corner of the hallway and came into view of the empty reception desk. A woman stood on the other side of the desk. She looked tired. Her hair was blonde and a bit mussed by the day, and she wore a blouse and jeans ensemble that even I could probably afford. She smiled slightly and her eyes seemed to sink backwards into darkness. I was wrong. She wasn't tired. She was exhausted. Sorry. I couldn't get off earlier. We stared at each other for a moment, and then I remembered and plastered on my maniac smile. Hers faltered a little in response, which I understood completely. I probably looked like a serial killer. I probably looked like Julie. No problem. I felt my cheeks ache as my smile grew a fraction wider. What can I do for you? And of course she wanted to rent something. If this was a movie, she would be cute and our little transaction would save my job and we would both be fulfilled somehow by meeting each other, but this wasn't a movie. She wasn't cute. She was much older than me and kind of, well, just flattened out, trod upon by my old friend, Reality. And here I stood with the binder in my hand and the stink of desperation all around me. A smell that had replaced pizza and Chinese food, but was really just the same smell. We leaned on opposite sides of the receptionist's desk as I flipped the pages of the binder. She wasn't looking at the pages. I need it cheap. It's me and my daughter. She paused. I kept flipping pages. She's 15. Like that was a nugget of information I really needed. I did nod my head, but that was the extent of my consideration. Crass. I could have done them the courtesy of spending more than one second considering their existence. And then page 12. That one. She stabbed a finger at the page. I looked up at her and she must have seen the question in my eyes. She shrugged. It's the cheapest I've seen. Two bedrooms, close to my work. I'll take it. Yes? I'd read the other binder. It wasn't that simple. References, deposits, all that jazz. But then I thought of Mr. Thompson. In the week I had to save my shitty closet of an apartment, not to mention my shitty job. Tomorrow morning. We can go and you can look at it. First thing. She smiled. I smiled. Just a pair of happy people. Getting things sorted out. I pause in my writing again. A car had gone past outside. I saw the lights and I was sure for a moment that it slowed down. But it kept going and now I know deep down that I'm being paranoid. 
The police won't be interested. This is not a crime scene. I don't know what it is. Not really, but I want to find out. Her name was Lucy. I met her at the house in the morning, early, before her work. I didn't mind. I mean, I was going to keep my job by doing this, at least for another week. I'd be lying if I said I got a bad vibe from the place. There were only two things that were really noteworthy about it. The first was the painful 1970s decor. The kitchen had orange plastic bench tops and a green and orange diamond pattern that screamed up at you from the linoleum floor. The carpet was thick and a deep, deep blue. And the walls were faux chestnut paneling. Yum. The second thing was the price. It was almost alarmingly cheap for a house. I mean, it was small, only two bedrooms with that vintage porn interior and a yard so small you couldn't spin around in it, but still, it was super cheap. And it looked like we had it listed for a long time. I didn't even bother with a spiel. She walked through and turned the tap on in the kitchen, watching the water flow. She flushed the toilet. We both stood and listened to the small shuddering of water hammer the walls. And she shrugged. I smiled my insane smile and looked down at the extra pages of information I had. I frowned. Um, standard bond. First and last week rent in advance and... I paused, digesting what I had read. I looked at the ring of keys in my hand. Yep, there it was. An extra key with a number three engraved in spidery, amateurish script on the side. What? I could hear the worry in her voice. Desperation recognizes itself, I guess. We were a pair, at least in that regard. I frowned. This says there's a third room, but it's not for rent. I flicked the page over and back again, but there was nothing else. Um, it says storage. The renter is not to have a key. Oh. She stared at me, and I stared at her. I suppose I should have said something, but I had no idea what that something should be. This was closer than I'd ever gotten to actually doing my job. I think I was more worried than she was that it might fall through. That feels a bit odd. I nodded. She was right. We lapsed into silence again, giving us time to really feel the awkwardness of the whole situation. Can I at least look in there? I mean, I'd like to make sure it's not like, I don't know, a torture chamber or a sweatshop or something? Well, I think you'd hear sewing machines if it was a sweatshop. She smiled slightly but said nothing. I wish she wouldn't smile. It made her look a thousand years old, all weary eyes and crushed struggle. Okay. 
I didn't know if I should, but I had the key, so what the hell, right? And if it was something weird in there, at least I'd close out my illustrious career with a cool story. I stop for just a moment, and I'm a little freaked out by the silence that flows in when I lean back in the chair. It scares me. Well, what I might hear in the silence scares me, I guess. <laughs> a cool story. I wish I hadn't written that down. I wish I hadn't thought that. The house had a kitchen and a lounge room at the front, a long corridor, two bedrooms and a bathroom at the back. The third room was halfway along the corridor, hiding behind a heavy-looking mahogany door. A dark, red-brown, almost maroon door. There was a silvery knob, a solid-looking modern lock plate, and a keyhole with the word Yale engraved in block letters across the front. Looking at it made me feel serious. Not afraid, just responsible. I had the key. I was going to open the door. I glanced at Lucy. She was staring at the door. Ready? I don't know why I asked. She nodded, and I slipped the key into the lock and turned. There was a smooth click, and I gave the door a little push. Nothing happened. I pushed harder, and it moved about an inch. I looked down. The carpet stopped at the door frame, and I could see deep score marks where the door had scraped against the wood floor in the past. I shoved harder, and there was a horrible sound of wood squealing against wood, almost like fingers down a chalkboard. I got it open just wide enough for us to slip in. The room was empty. Completely empty. I mean, there wasn't even that lovely blue carpeting, just dusty floorboards. There was a window that must have looked out on the neighbor's yard, but it had either been whitewashed a long time ago or was so filthy it made a difference. I breathed out. As I did so, I heard Lucy do the same. We must have both been holding our breath. Looking back now, I guess the subconscious knows a lot more than the bumbling overbrain does. Why is it closed off? I shrugged, although I knew what she meant. Storage. There's nothing stored in here but dust. There wasn't another answer I could give her. We stared around the room for a moment and then she turned away. Close it. And with that, she walked towards the kitchen. I closed it. It took some doing. I jerked on the handle repeatedly, moving the door about an inch each time. That squealing sound accompanied each tug as the door scraped across the wooden floor. Finally, I got it closed, and I locked it. I know I did. I remember distinctly the feel and sound of the lock 
clicking back into place. I even remember giving the door a hard shove to be sure. It was locked solid. Obviously, she signed the lease, paid the bond, ticked the boxes. She wanted the place, and she could afford the place, and I needed the rental. The holy trifecta. I left her with the keys and hightailed it to work to deliver the astounding news that I didn't need to be fired for another week. Mr. Thompson's reaction was not what I would call ecstatic. You rented that place? He looked pale. Julie was there, too. And her wide and insane smile sagged into oblivion as I spoke. She looked like she had just discovered that I spent the evenings rubbing my crotch all over her desk or something. I ignored her and confirmed for Mr. Thompson that I had indeed done my job and rented one of the places in the binder. Ah. What's the matter? I should have expected something. Just my luck. Mr. Thompson fell silent for a long moment. He looked pensive. Finally, he nodded to himself and looked up. Nothing for you to worry about. Just ancient history. He smiled, creeping me out. I shot a quick glance at Julie, who also attempted a wavering, toothy smile maxing out my creep factor. He waved me away, and I went, lugging my misgivings with me. What the hell? I'd done my job. One day, that was all it took. Or one night, rather. And then the cops called. Was I the rental agent? Could I go around? Lucy was almost hysterical. I could hear her in the background. She pounced as soon as I walked in the open front door. She all but screamed in my face. Open that door! I did a double take even as a uniformed police officer gently inserted himself between us. Lucy stared at me. The shadows under her eyes a dark purple. Her cheeks white, her eyes wide. What's happened? I was on the edge of the kitchen. I could see several cardboard boxes sitting here and there. Two were open, and there were some plates and utensils stacked on one kitchen bench, the detritus from a weak effort of moving in. The police officer held me by the upper arm and steered me down the corridor. Lucy begrudgingly fell back before us. She glared at me. I could see the clear snot on her upper lip. Her eyes were bloodshot. The officer paused and looked at me. The woman's daughter is missing. I stopped walking and felt his fingers dig into my arm. He was short and a bit pudgy, but his grip was strong. What? Inane, but that's generally how humans react in a crisis, I guess. She's in there! 
Lucy jerked one hand at the locked maroon door. We had already reached it. The house was small and the corridor wasn't long. In there? How? No one replied. I could hear the low murmur of voices from the kitchen. More police talking quietly. Calmly. Can you open it? I nodded. I had the keys in my pocket, which was not a coincidence. A police officer had called me. I had brought everything to do with the property. I even had the binder under my arm. Lucy stepped aside, giving me barely enough room to reach the door. I stuck the key in and turned it. The lock clicked, and Lucy pushed past me to shove hard on the door. Just like before, it gave grudgingly, making an ugly scraping sound against the floor. She got it open much wider than I had previously. The police officer stepped in behind her, and, unsure of what I should do, I followed. The room was empty. There was a faint layer of dust across the floorboards that Lucy stirred as she entered. I could see individual dust motes floating in the dim morning light that was struggling through the dirty window. Lucy visibly sagged. The police officer nodded to himself. But I heard it! Lucy turned to stare at me, her face haggard and eyes pleading. The police officer stepped forward. He was pudgy and short, like I said, but he had a kind face. Tell me again? He sounded very patient. Lucy didn't look at him. She looked at me. Elizabeth. Betty. You never asked me her name. I didn't know what to say. She was right, I hadn't asked. The police officer cleared his throat, and Lucy spoke again. She didn't look at him, though she kept staring at me. She would never run away. Never. Ma'am. Lucy shook her head as if she could force his words away. She took a deep breath and cast her eyes around the room again, as if she couldn't believe the emptiness. We didn't get much unpacked. I had to work, and Betty had school. But we got the beds in and made some headway with the other boxes. This was supposed to be our time. I looked at the officer. He flicked his gaze to me and then back to Lucy. I couldn't tell what he was thinking. He had a bushy little mustache, and as I watched, he started sucking on it. I don't think he knew he was doing it. Lucy had started speaking again. We both were tired. We went to bed early. She looked at the officer, and I had the feeling this had been a thing between them. I heard the click and then the door opening. She flicked her gaze to me and then back to the officer and then back to me again. 
I got up. And when I stepped into the corridor, I saw that door closing. She thrust a trembling finger at the door behind us. I didn't know what to say. The police officer said nothing, but he bent down and examined the bottom of the door. He reached out with one hand and lightly touched the scratch marks where the door had scraped across the wood. A few marks were fresh, but most were very old and worn. I could practically feel the skepticism baking off of him. I stood awkwardly and wondered when I could make my exit. Like he had read my mind, the officer looked up at me and tilted his head towards the door. I opened my mouth to say something to Lucy, and then closed it and made for the door. If there was someone in the world who knew what to say in such a situation, they were not present in that room. Mr. Thompson seemed to age 20 years when I told him what had happened. Did the police say anything to you? Ask you anything? His face was pale and his eyes wide. Julie was there as well. God knows why she was there. Maybe they were an item on the down low. Even if that was the case, right then both of them only had eyes for yours truly. I shook my head. Why? Mr. Thompson stared at me for a moment and then grimaced. It's a murder house. What? Julie smiled, but it was a tight, mirthless smile. I was getting the idea she didn't like me much, if she had to start with. I guess I'd gotten her in trouble. Some people just love a grudge, I guess. Thompson just shrugged. It was a long time ago, in that room, you know. He stopped talking and just looked at me for a little bit. I just stared. I mean, what was I going to say? What was I going to ask? I couldn't think of anything worse than standing there getting the sordid details from this pair of Stepford maniacs. So I didn't ask anything, and I got the sense they were a little disappointed in my underdeveloped gossip muscle. In the end, Thompson just shrugged and pointed at the door. He was starting to look perky again. As I left, he spoke to my back. Don't volunteer anything. The plump police officer was standing at the receptionist's desk the next morning when I walked in the door to work. Morning. He held out a hand. I shook it and tried not to look at his little mustache. It was wet. He'd been sucking on it again. Uh, what's up? Uh, what can I do for you? He sighed and then sucked on his mustache briefly. Can you come open that door again? Why don't I just give you the key? He shook his head. No, no need really. She's gone missing. The mother, I mean. So we went back. I didn't bother telling Thompson. 
The half-unpacked boxes were still on the kitchen floor, and the plates were still on the bench, but the place already felt empty. Unlived in. The corridor felt longer. It felt like I was sinking into that blue shag carpet as I followed the officer down the hall. Her work called it in. They knew what happened with her daughter, of course. Her boss tried to get a hold of her to see how she was. He stopped at the door and gestured. I fished out the key and unlocked the door. We both pushed, and the door grudgingly moved inwards, accompanied by that unpleasant sound of wood squealing against wood. It was the same empty room. The officer stepped in and looked around, so I did the same. And there was nothing. <sighs> Just needed to check. He turned back to the door. I lingered. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was because of what Thompson had said. I stepped over to the window and peered at it. It was incredibly dirty. I looked closer. I could just make out rusty nail heads along the wooden base of the window frame. It had been nailed shut long ago. I turned to go and had a moment of complete disorientation. The room lurched and I sucked in air hard. The door was slowly closing. Very slowly. I stared at it. I knew how hard it had been to push open. I had felt it grind against the floor as I put my weight against it, but now, as I stared at it, it was closing very slowly. Smoothly. Inch by inch. Silently. I shook my head. The door continued its slow creep closed. I stepped towards it and I could swear I saw it giving a little lurch, moving a few more inches in one movement. Without thinking, I grabbed the doorframe and gave a tug backwards. Nothing happened, but I swear I felt a moment of resistance. I jerked again and felt the small grinding vibration of the door scraping against the floor. I gave it another jerk, widening the gap enough to slip through, and stepped out into the hallway. I stood there, breathing shakily. Lock that, would you? <laughs> the police officer spoke loudly from down the hall, and I screamed. So here I sit, blunt pencil in hand and a pile of what I hope are legible scribblings in a cheap notebook on the table. There are plates on the kitchen bench and half-unpacked boxes on the floor. I've turned one light on so I can see what I've been writing, but I wish I didn't have to. The hallway is a black rectangle that I try not to look at. I strain, but I can hear nothing. How did I get from a screaming mess in the hallway to sitting here like this? 
I wish I could answer that properly. It took a week for absolutely nothing to happen. Lucy did not reappear, nor did her daughter. I eventually caved and asked Thompson for more information on the house, but he just shook his head and reminded me I needed to rent another property soon. I was back on borrowed time. I sat in my cramped little apartment that night and wondered why I was bothering. With the job. With anything, really. Julie was more forthcoming. I guess she liked to gossip more than she disliked me, but it was a pretty threadbare story. And Thompson had it wrong. There had been no real murder, it had all just been implied. I couldn't stop thinking about it. That house, that room, Betty, and Lucy, and that door slowly inching its way shut. The house had been unoccupied for five years. It was the same owner now as then, a disinterested investor who used the place as a tax break. But it had to be a genuine rental for that, I guess, and someone had taken it up previously. It had taken several days before someone had reported the missing person. The renter had been a young man, away from home for the first time. New job, new town, you know the deal. I tried to ignore the similarities, even as I looked at that toothy smile on Julie's face. They searched the place. Thompson was the one who let them into the locked room. And there was nothing in there. Well, almost nothing. And that almost is where the murder rumor came from, I guess. When Thompson and a police officer pushed that door open, something fell to the floor. Thompson had bent down, but the officer had barked at him to stop. Stop and step back. It was a fingertip. He was mashed up pretty badly from being wedged between the door and the door frame. Crushed. Like someone had not pulled their hand away quick enough when the door closed. Or had grabbed at the door as it closed, maybe. It turned out to belong to the young man who had rented the place, and a flurry of activity ensued. But there was no blood, no other trace evidence, nothing at all in that room, except some dust and a dirty window. Eventually, things had died down. That was then, and this is now. I guess things are settling down again, and quickly, but it doesn't seem like that in my head. I'm going to lose my job, I know that. I suck at it, and I don't have any drive to try and do it anyhow. I guess I really don't care. I keep thinking of that door, of how hard it was to push open, and how I caught it as it slowly swung shut. I think of my crappy apartment, and of Lucy's frantic expression when I last saw her. I think of my girlfriend and that look of relief on her face when she kicked me to the curb. And I think of my parents, and how they had that same look on their face when I announced my exit from my childhood home. I wonder if Thompson and Julie will look like that if I don't come into work. I can't stop thinking about that room. I wonder if it's still empty when the door closes and you're on the inside. I lift my pencil from the page for a moment, I heard it just now, I'm sure. A click of a lock.
It seems very loud in the dark house. I look towards the hallway. It's dark out there. Very dark. But in a moment, I'll put the house keys on the table and take myself down the hallway and check that the door is now open. I'm sure it will be. And then I will go in. And then I will see. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.